You're listening to The Big Data Beard. Welcome to The Big Data Beard Podcast, where we explore the exciting trends, technology evolutions, and talented people making big data a big deal. I'm Corey Minton, your host for today's episode, and joining me today, I've got two of the more handsome members of the Big Data Beard podcast team, one with a beard, one fledglingly growing scruff, but it's okay. We still love him. His name is Rob Hout. Rob, how are you doing today, brother? Doing awesome. Glad glad to see you virtually. Awesome. Indeed. And then Thomas Henson, the bearded man from the Shoals of Alabama, teaching us all kinds of things about big data and big questions. How are you doing today, brother? Wait a minute. I'm on a podcast? That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. He thought he was just hanging out with us. It got awkward for a second there. (laughs) Join us today. We're super excited to have Anat from Blue Data join us. Anat, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to hanging out with you guys. Awesome, buddy. Well, let's do this. Let's have uh, let's have a little chat about the news. Just recently, uh, our friends at Oracle had their uh, wonderful Oracle Open World show, uh, and like all shows, uh, they're filled with excitement, uh, new technology announcements, innovations that are happening in the space. Oracle clearly really interested in the big data space. But I thought this year's uh, show was exceptionally fun. And uh, the the chairman of, of Oracle, Larry Ellison, uh, really got pretty crazy on stage. Uh, I think the interesting thing that we saw in the news, you can check out a few articles from TechCrunch uh, that talked about Larry being Larry. So Larry made some announcements this week around they have a new autonomous database offering uh, that they believe is very competitive to the offerings from Redshift and AWS. And they've got some uh, some new security cloud offerings that are competitive to Splunk. And uh, he straight up uh, just went like toe-to-toe with two very well-established companies. Did you guys, uh, did you guys see anything interesting that Larry said that, that, uh, that made Larry be Larry? Yeah, I saw uh, where he kind of took a shot at, uh, it seems like, Redshift. And, you know, that was one of the articles that I was reading was, you know, Larry being Larry, you know, fired, fired a shot at uh, AWS and I kind of understand it too a little bit, but it's kind of cool because it's like cloud wars are now kind of spilling over into big data. And part of the reason is, I mean, Oracle's had this big push for their cloud. And so, you know, databases and, you know, some of the, some of these other things that are going to the cloud. So they're, you know, they're, they're going head to head with Amazon. And so they're trying to push back. And so one of the things they were talking about was Redshift. Well, if you read some of the articles and, and you see the other pieces, People are firing back saying, hey, you know, and AWS came out and made a statement saying, hey, that's that's wrong. But if you look on the Twitterverse, you've got your Oracle people that are taken up for Larry and you've got people from AWS that are fighting back and forth. So it's like, is it a new feature that that Larry was, you know, Larry was talking about that's not been implemented yet? And, you know, the AWS people are jumping on. So it's it's really cool just to see the cloud wars kind of, you know, spilling over into big data. It is cool. I thought it was actually exceptionally interesting that. Specifically in the Amazon case, um, what made everybody crazy was Larry basically just made some comments about how, hey, this is what Oracle does. And then he said, and oh, by the way, this is it's better because Amazon Redshift doesn't do these things like scale compute separately from storage. Um, he talked about having to copy data between databases, have to turn on, turn off, right, that work very clearly, like not the things that a company like a cloud a cloud provider would probably do. And the the my favorite comment was that Amazon spokesperson just basically said, no, this is just, just rubbish. It's yeah, rubbish. and that's, that's exactly what I was going to say too, right? So I, mean, I look at Oracle attacking somebody like Amazon and like Amazon's, they are the masters of the cloud universe right now. Oracle's awesome at data, but trying to listen to Oracle, try to bash Amazon and how they do cloud was hilarious to me. I mean, five years ago, I mean, or maybe, you know, 10 years ago for sure, but maybe even five, five, four, four or five years ago, would, you know, Larry Ellison have taken a shot at Amazon? You know, were, the, were they that big of a competitor to some extent? So like you were saying, I mean, it, it, it definitely justifies it. And it's funny that they're getting in, you know, they, you know, they've had this big push for the last two or three years getting into cloud where, you know, Amazon just kind of has been running away in that space. I just wanted to echo some of the comments that you're making. I mean, the fact that Larry Ellison, you know, the stature of Larry Ellison standing up at Open World and making these uh, big, bold comments uh, just shows, I mean, uh, that cloud is the new battlefront. And from what I hear, the word on the street is a lot of the large Fortune 500 are going to make some big bets on specific clouds as part of their overall cloud strategy over the next two, three years. And I think this is just Larry trying to 
uh, create a conversation uh, or create some attention for Oracle, um, you know, by just picking on something like Redshift. Uh, but you also mentioned Splunk, for example, and the announcement that he's making, right? So he's obviously been uh, trying to make cloud a big sort of topic of discussion. But the key facilitator for all of those sort of that his business, his cloud business is going to be those uh, storage intensive workloads, whether it's databases, whether it's log analytics. And, uh, you know, I think Larry's just trying to make a play and grab the attention of the CIO. So they bring Oracle to the table when they're coming down to the short list of the clouds they're going to select uh, in their first phase of their journey. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Actually, the thing I thought was kind of the standout for me was, you know, Larry was doing his best to. Uh, you know, bring his company out to the forefront, right? Say, hey, this is the great things we're doing. And when he took these stabs at these other companies, and we'll get to another one in a second, but specifically with Amazon, he gave Amazon such a door opener to like go re you know reestablish themselves and put themselves back in the center of the conversation. And that's actually a lot of the press and in the Twitterverse was all about how Oracle Open World did really did it was it more about AWS than it was about Oracle in some cases. And shifting gears, actually, it. So the other thing that they did was they went after Splunk. So Larry went straight after Splunk saying, you know, hey, these are the guys that invented, uh, you know, kind of log analytics. And they talked about that, right? And that was a, a kind of a funny thing. But then he basically went in to say, you know, hey, we're going to do it better and our model's better, um, which I thought the my favorite part about all this was not only that Larry came out and said these things and he went on the attack but it's the responses. So we have this, we have this article. So blog, actually it's an article. So Doug Merritt, CEO of Splunk, friend of the big data beard, um, came out and his article is, or his blog is Splunk fires back at ludicrous Larry. And it's actually on the Splunk website and it's comical because he basically walks through, you know, kind of a, a funny concern about like, Hey, I, I get what you're saying, but your model's kind of broken and you don't have the community. It, it, if to me, like giving a company like Splunk the chance to go after it, to go after somebody as big as Oracle and open that door. It's crazy. Like that's like Larry, why would you go after somebody like Splunk? We all get religious about, you know, technologies and, and things we use. So it's kind of a rally and cry too. And like, a you know, I got all these promoted tweets from Oracle in my Twitter feed that kind of got me, got me interested in it and got me, you know, digging into what, what all was going on. So, I mean, the fact is we're talking about it. Oracle's still going to be there. They're still going to, you know, they're still going to be playing, but you know, they're starting to feel the pressure. They're starting, they're starting to see people that they didn't pay attention to three, four years ago, maybe even five years ago. They're starting to pay attention to those people. And, you know, it's starting to come away a little bit at their business and, you know, their in growth in certain areas. I mean, you know, there's other podcasts. I mean, I think there was a, there was, there was a podcast back, uh, I think it was speaking in tech where they were talking about it. And I think Chad Sackage was on and he was talking about Oracle and kind of their business model and kind of, you know, where do we start to see that too? So, I mean, we're starting to see it, you know, come from, from, from every which way. And that's one of the things that, you know, I think Larry was trying to do is also a rallying cry to his people saying, Hey, we've got you covered. We, we understand that we, you know, we need to change and then, you know, try to put a little fight back in it to get us all talking about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I kind of agree. Cause the, the, one of the things that made Oracle great over many, many years has been the Oracle database and the innovations that they've made in database have been like, you cannot look past them as an absolute innovator in that space. And, and what they're, I, I think it makes sense that what they're trying to do is they're trying to take those heritage things that they do exceptionally well and, and transform them into being useful in new and interesting use cases, which I think that's what every like data companies trying to do, which is, Hey, we, we found our niche. Like we find our niche and Splunk, Splunk is no different than this, right? We found our niche. How do we go take that niche and the, and the IP and the intellectual capital we've built? And frankly, the community of people and users that we've built, how do we go take that and apply it in new and interesting ways to increase our relevance in the market and use cases and that kind of thing. So it doesn't surprise me. I think one of the things that, that I think, uh, the Doug may have underestimated is the Oracle community. Cause one of the things that Doug calls out is he says, you know, Hey, you, you really don't understand the, the integration and the community necessary to support something like security. But, but I would actually argue that an, an organization like Oracle with the people who are, like you said, Thomas, religious followers of the Oracle brand, I would think that they're going to be in it. There's going to be an incredible community of users within the Oracle space that are going to go, dude, like finally we have a security use case and they're going to adopt it. And it's going to explode. Yeah. So what are, what is Oracle chasing? What is AWS chasing? What is Splunk chasing? 
they're all chasing machine learning, AI, those, those new markets that are coming. They all, they all have the data. They all have data products. And that's, that's kind of where this open battlefield is going. You know, I was kind of saying that it's cloud war spilling over to big data, but it's probably spilling over more into machine learning and AI. And let's just put it all in the same bucket, right? Yeah. It's, it, the, the interesting thing I think is Splunk has so many customers in this space right now. And they're in, in, in Doug's specific blog, he calls out a number of them from, he calls out Rackspace and Aflac and Gatwick Airport and the state of Louisiana, all as, you know, interesting customers that have been successful using Splunk that I think Oracle is going to have to, they're going to have to find those, those anchor accounts that will be good references for them to create the momentum in the marketplace in order to, in order to actually see the security thing happen. Because not only good customers, but integrations are, are a big part of the story here. So how many of those customers that were named do you think also have Oracle in their shop? I'd almost guarantee all of them do. <laughs> so, that's, well, and, that's, and, and that's exactly what he kind of yeah. says. He's like, it's a heterogeneous world. I mean, I would actually say that this is a great opportunity maybe for uh, Splunk and Oracle to play nice together. Like maybe they could fi figure out some ways for Splunk to be a, an engine that feeds the uh, Oracle event center. So are you saying that we should get Ludacris, Larry, and Doug to a beer summit sometime? We yes. could host it, right? I think we really should be like the liaisons for that. I will close with this on this story, though. The, my favorite thing about this was that Doug just straight up, like he went for the jugular at the end of this. Like he was, he was all nice and factual about it, you know, and talked about customers and really stayed on message. But the last paragraph of his blog, he basically says, look, we've been doing machine data on trains planes and automobiles for many years <laughs> and he said we can also help you with some boat data <laughs> because they've got a picture of the the oracle uh the america's cut boat on its side he's like maybe we could i know it's too late for this year but maybe we could help you use data to do better next year so i thought that was a pretty nice uh i shouldn't say nice it was a fantastic stab at uh ludicrous larry so anyways larry continues to uh continues to be sort of a interesting character to watch and certainly no lack of good stuff coming out of oracle open world yeah, I mean, if you guys have been around uh, as long as I've been in this space, uh, you know, prior to getting into the infrastructure software space, this is classic Oracle and Larry playbook, right? When they, back in the early 2000s, when they were lagging other ERP players in certain spaces like HR management, they would take a stab. You know, they started off as a database company and then they went into apps. And at that time, it was similar kind of, uh, they were getting into a new business. Uh, they you know, threatened a lot of the existing ones like PeopleSoft and JD Edwards and so on. And then, you know, ultimately they tried to build something and they couldn't. And, you know, you know what exactly what happened. They went and bought all those companies. Uh, <laughs> and then similar thing happened with software as a service. You know, the world moved on to the sales forces and the net suites. And, um, you know, a lot of software as a service companies, you know, Larry and team obviously went into that as well. And they were late entrants. And then they consolidated that space. And now the next sort of frontier is the cloud. Um, now, clearly, you know, it's a lot different than the previous uh, generations of software. You got like, you know, behemoths like Microsoft and you know, Amazon and Google. Um, and, and so now they're building this Oracle cloud. Uh, I'm not so sure whether that same table can happen. But one way that they can clearly, I think the strategy that they're probably thinking about is how can we get the key workloads like database, log analytics, the top three or four, you know, line items in a CIO's budget, you know, how can we make sure that those go into uh, the Oracle cloud? I think that's kind of what I see happening right now. Uh, God only knows what's going to happen in the next few years, but you know, that's Larry being Larry. <laughs> yeah. And it, and we saw it too. I mean, if you look at the, the approach that they've taken uh, in, in, in building these, uh, you know, these clouds and even in Doug, he kind of talks about the difference between, you know, just in time sort of data integration being one way of doing it. And the other way, which Oracle is, you know, more the database centric way, which is get all the data into a single consolidated place so that I can then ask the questions. So it is really an architecture, like for the data engineer and for the practitioner, it's a very different approach in terms of, um, platforms and process for data integration that would, that, that would exist for each of these two platforms. It's not that one is right or wrong. One's frankly more proven than the other probably, but it's, you know, it does have some cumbersome things behind it. So it will be interesting to watch not only cloud versus, 
you know, kind of software as a service versus private hosted on-premises deployments of technologies, but also which processing methodologies end up winning in this space, whether it's, you know, schema on read versus schema on write, it's, it's data consolidation or it's data integration. Like those are some really interesting things. And, and frankly, I mean, if you look at the big data players right now, the two biggest announcements that have come out of Cloudera and Hortonworks in the last month are data integration platforms. So SDX from Cloudera and data plane from Hortonworks, it's all about that data integration space, which I think Larry may have grossly underestimated its importance and complication. So pretty interesting stuff. Let's, um, let's shift to this one. I actually, I think this is, this is, the story's kind of fun. It's from data economy. Um, and it talks about this new term called a fintechpreneur, which is a amalgamation of many terms, uh, of being a financial technologist entrepreneur or financial technology entrepreneur. And it talks about the rise of that, that role and why it matters. And, you know, when we look at big data and, and analytics, where it has been, um, probably one adopted first, uh, but two has had some of the, the most interesting challenges has been in financial services. Have you guys worked with financial services customers? Have you seen any places where, um, maybe, banks and financial services companies have too much baggage to be innovative? Is that something that could be real in that space? I mean, just a quick, we're working obviously uh, with customers who are trying to come up with new architectures, new models for allowing their internal organizations to innovate, provide more financial products, whether it's in, I think the article talked about lending as a service. And lending is obviously, you know, the, um, you know, the oxygen for a bank uh, in terms of how they make money. And so we definitely see a lot of financial services companies trying to innovate in that area. So more on that later uh, when we talk, but we, I definitely see that in a lot of financial services organizations as it pertains to the big data in initiatives. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's one of those where lending, I mean, I think you hit one nail on the head, which is any big data project has to serve kind of two needs, either drive revenue, which lending for a bank is a, is a big part of revenue and, you know, or drive out costs. And I think that's where this article kind of goes, kind of digs in as it says, there's, there's both opportunities for the fintechpreneur to, um, go in and help, uh, you know, existing banks do things better. And it talks about this easy Bob sort of lending as a service thing that you referenced, but it also talks about how there's, there are some limitations uh, that fintechpreneurs may exist inside banks, and they may be, you know, they may be just be changing the way that um, that those banks do other parts of the business, not just the lending as a service, but actually the, you know, the operations side of the business. Yeah, and so that was the point that I was gonna I was gonna bring up is there's there's two or three sides to this that I see. So one is the the established banks trying to broaden their service portfolio and trying to get into this financial space and trying to appease to a whole generation of people who do nothing but business on their phone to all the new startups. Like I've got some accounts at some of these really small banks. And I don't think they even have a physical preference presence, right? Like all the banking I do is, is on my device, on my mobile device, like I pay bills, get my jack tools, kinds of things. So I, the, both sides of that industry are trying to service the same people and then they're starting to merge and cross the streams from all those different data sets. So they're coming at it from radically different ways. But some of those folks trying to introduce even more services into a smaller transaction time, which is really interesting to me. And that'll, that'll go into our next story that we'll talk about here in a second. But Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I mean, are, you know, the banks that are going to be successful are the ones that are going to kind of innovate, right? Just like in any, in any industry. But my thing has always been, you know, when I was talking with customers, especially small banks, I was like, man, you know, if, you know, this was three, four years ago. If you get on the big data and you, you get on the data analytics and really start making use of the data that you have, you can, you know, whatever your goals are, you can, you can get to there and you can get to there a lot quicker. Cause I mean, a lot of the larger financial institutions haven't been using that. And I mean, you saw it from a, you know, there was a comment from Jamie Dimon and he wasn't specifically talking about, he was talking about Bitcoin, but he was, he, you know, he was saying that he was on cryptocurrency, but I'd like to, I'd like to find out, you know, how he feels about the lending services and, you know, the lending as a service. I mean, that's huge. You know, you know, you say, you know, peer to peer and, you know, we kind of just looked at it and laughed three, four years ago, but it's huge. There's a ton of them. And then another thing to think about that's, I think is just like peer to peer. I mean, how many people have ever heard of Kickstarter, right? Who would, who wouldn't love to have, you know, Kickstarter's portfolio and some of the things that they're involved with. And I mean, they're essentially a, a peer to peer uh, lending site. I mean, so you think about when, when the market crashed in 2008, I mean, Kickstarter's and you know, finding funding that way when the banks were kind of a little bit more, 
you know, restrictive with loans and some of the other things for the startups, people could go to Kickstarter and do it. Yeah, I think the interestingly, one of the things that this article goes into is this this sort of changing regulatory horizon that we're in, and that there's um, there's an opportunity for advanced technologies, uh, not only in the data analytics space, but also in the transaction. Uh, broad scale distributed transaction concurrency kind of space. So think blockchain utilization of uh, standardizing the way that uh, not only that we report uh, any financial transactions for the purpose of anti-money laundering and others, but also to standardize our our invoicing process uh, amongst the banks, which is a great thing for, you know, users uh, and, you know, the customers, but could cause a serious problem for those banks that, have those proprietary systems. And you talk about banks that, you know, we talk about use the data you have. Think about some of these old banks. Like these banks, not they have data that's not not a few decades. Like they could have centuries worth of data, right? This is an incredible opportunity for uh, in financial services, given I get it's hard, <laughs> the, the regulations will continue to slow it down. But if in terms of data rich, besides baseball, I don't know of a more data rich environment than uh, than financial services. Well, if they're going to have to make all that data pub- public too, I mean, there's a huge market there. Maybe I should, you know, start a Kickstarter fund for uh, data integration for me to be able to push out all the all the data to make that regulation, right? Oh, <laughs> we just found we just found our first next fintechpreneur. I don't even think I can say that. <laughs> say that ten times fast, and you'll end up cursing. Don't do that to yourself. Now, one uh, interesting use case I saw in the in the financial service space that. This shouldn't surprise any of us, but I, I love that we're starting to see machine learning get real, you know, u- real use cases, real published customers doing interesting stuff with it. Is this story about, um, it came out of uh, about FICO, about they've actually built a machine learning algorithm that's improving car- a card fraud detection by over 30%. Like, that's kind of a big deal in this space. And FICO, obviously, an established um, software firm. Uh, in the financial services space, but for them to to have achieved that big of a change in fraud detection uh, with machine learning seems like a pretty good justification of ML in this space. Well, they've had a crap ton of users to test it on recently with the uh, Equifax <laughs> breach and some of the other things, right? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Did you guys get any emails? Were you, were you guys breached? Or no, you, you good? Oh, uh, this is like the second or third time that I've been breached. So, you know, Equifax and then like, so the government... So I, w- I was a defense contractor for a while. So both me and my family, you know, everybody's everybody's uh, social security number that I had to put in for you know certain certain classifications and certain jobs, I, I was breached there. I mean, it's just a, it's just an ongoing revolving thing. Yeah, one one of my favorite comments out of um, out, out of this this article was this. Uh, so Doctor Scott Zoldi is the FICO chief analytics officer, and my favorite comment he made was, "Machine learning algorithms are greedy; they gobble up data." Which is so true, right? Think about it. If you turn these machine learning algorithms loose, if you want to have a, a it, it'd be successful, you want to give it as much training data as possible in many cases, right? So it's it's all the more reason why, like I said before, in financial services where we have data-rich environments, those are they seem to me as like the, the simplest places to start with things like machine learning. Because machine learning, as Dr. Zoldi says, is incredibly greedy and the more data you give it, the better it's going to be. And they proved it with, I mean, they said something like, I mean, it's 30% improvement in fraud detection. Like I'm, I'm good with that. I don't like fraud. Yeah, no, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, with all the breaches that we've had, I mean, you, you want to be able to protect it, but, but it, it's, it's funny that you said that, you know, machine, machine learning is greedy. And then we were just talking about banks. So, you know, <laughs> is it monopoly where we all talk about the banker, right? <laughs> all, everything's greedy, bro. All right. So let's do this. Let's, uh, fun times talking with news. Let's now shift gears and talk to our good friend, Anant from Blue Data. Anant, would you do me a favor? And, uh, would you just introduce yourself to us here? Absolutely, uh, folks. So my name is, uh, Anant Chintamaneni. I'm, uh, Vice President of Product here at Blue Data, um, and uh, responsible for the overall product strategy roadmap and few of our strategic partnerships. Uh, prior to Blue Data, I was at Pivotal. I uh, was responsible for the Hadoop product line and the analytic runtime, so some of the database analytics, uh, machine learning libraries that we had. Uh, and then prior to that at Greenplum, and prior to that at a lot, you know number of. Uh, performance management and business intelligence and analytics type companies. So NetNet have been kind of involved in data 
for the last uh, almost 20 years. Your career has been all about data. So I, I have to ask the question, was being a, being a data guy, was that like a conscious decision or did you just fall into it? Or was it just because you, you, know, you went to Stanford and everybody leaves Stanford with a, a pre-IPO sort of board seat? Like what's, the, what's that about? <laughs> No, so I just chanced uh, upon big data, you know. So, uh, pro, you know, I, I got introduced to big data and the whole concept of big data in 2011. So there was already Hadoop at that time, and it was sort of gaining some level of momentum. Uh, but frankly, I was building applications. So data sort of, you know, reporting, business intelligence type applications. I was at a company that was doing customer operations performance management. So think call centers, call center employees. And, you know, how do you manage uh, their performance? How do you motivate them to improve their performance? And so we got the chance to work with a large number of telcos. And what they told us, and we earned their trust in terms of solving some performance management problems was, hey, you guys should be really looking at solving some bigger problems for us, like, you know, looking at all our call records and our billing systems and trying to marry all that data and solving what they call first call resolution or first contact resolution, which is, how can we minimize the number of calls we get um, so that you know we can resolve the customer's issue? And that basically led me into big data, so where we started to collect a whole bunch of data. Uh, we built the first prototype using like you know Oracle database and grid gain. And then we said there's got to be a better way to do this to be able to incorporate larger data sets, do more analytics versus just sort of data like one algorithm, right? How do we take a data set and apply multiple algorithms on it to solve multiple business problems so we can have a product? That's how I got into Hadoop. And that's when I said, you know, I got to take this seriously. I really enjoyed what I was seeing in terms of the ability to have unstructured data, store that, the whole schema on, uh, um, you know, read. Uh, that was very, very sort of attractive. And that's when I moved to Greenplum and started working with the data science team at Greenplum very closely. So yeah, long answer to a short question, but I, like I think many people, I, I managed to just sort of, uh, you know, chance into the whole big data ecosystem. No, that's great. That sounds similar to how I got involved in Hadoop. So I have a question. So you were talking about the call center data and it was, you know, you guys were looking at it and it was like, hey, you guys are you guys are answering these small questions, but why don't you look at it from a bigger picture? So you had the call center data. Let me ask, were you guys already capturing all that data, but just not analyzing it? Or how, how did you kind of view into it? Because that's one, things I, one of the things that I found was, you know, when I first got into big data and we started using Hadoop, we had requirements for the customer I was working with to, to keep and hold all this data anyway. So we were like, why the hell don't we just look at it? I mean, were you guys already holding on to that call center data? And how was that process? Yeah, so when we first got the call center data, we basically got these data feeds from this telco. And, uh, you know, we basically told them up front, like, hey, these are, the, these are the fields that we need at minimum. They said, these are all the fields we have. What can you take? And, you know, we said, oh, well, we're going to store it in a database. So don't give us, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. Just give us what we think we need for doing what's called FCR, first contact resolution. Um, so then we started storing that in our database, you know, on our side. But then as we went through the analytics, we were always uh, kind of saying, hey, what if we had that text data? Uh, what if we actually had that audio recording as well? Uh, what if we had, uh, you know, some of that other data set? You know, I think we could get a little bit more precision or get some more insights that we would otherwise not get. So that's when we said, hey, we've got to be able to go in and store more data. And then, you know, as the questions come up, be able to analyze it. So that was kind of the rationale behind going after, uh, you know, Hadoop and going through kind of a, a, a sort of a system where we could store a lot more data, more unstructured data. Um, so th that's kind of uh, how we how we made the decision that we needed to evolve from solving this one point specific sort of problem having a platform that could solve multiple problems and potentially build multiple analytics products. So I have to ask you, cause I'm, I'm kind of a fan of the, of Pivotal as a company. They've got a really cool ethos and a company culture uh, prior to their acquisition by, you know, EMC years ago, like just one of those really interesting companies. So you were there in some, some of the, I, I would have to think would have been really exciting sort of pioneer days, if you will. Right. You guys were, we're really paving the way for much of what we're doing today and will do in the future. Give us a sense of what it was like to be around Pivotal in such a in such an explosive time of growth and innovation. Like, give us a little sense of what that was like. 
Yeah, no, it was fantastic, right? So I was at Green Plum and then the Pivotal Initiative was formed. So this is when a bunch of assets came in from VMware, you know, Cloud Foundry was this sort of new thing that, you know, I mean, it was very brand new and I, I kind of understood, uh, you know, the whole sort of platform as a service concept. Um, so, but it, it took it took a while for guys who were from, you know, analytics and database to really grok. Uh, grok uh, what the whole sort of platform as a service model was what does it mean to push an app to um uh, to actually have this sort of cloud native sort of development models the cloud was still pretty early so i think it was it was interesting at that time that there was this concept of cloud foundry we were obviously very focused on data on green plum on at that time green plum hd and we were beginning to sort of get into hadoop but for me, what was very cool about uh, Pivotal and Pivotal Labs was their kind of development methodology. I'm in product management, so you know, working with engineers, sort of drawing up the requirements and going through that product development lifecycle, you know, is always is as much a little bit of an art as it is, you know, uh, it's an art and a science. Uh, so I was very fortunate to embrace that sort of development methodology uh, in a project uh, in Greenplum I worked on called Madlib, uh, which was a machine learning product and, you know, and something that I worked on with a bunch of engineers. So we embraced the Pivotal Labs way of developing uh, in this sort of agile methodology. And, and that was uh, definitely very, very rewarding. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, very cool in terms of the results you could get, the level of collaboration you could get between, uh, you know, the different team members um, and, uh, you know, the outcome in terms of the product quality and the product that was built. And, and you know, it really kind of hit as close to the bullseye as you possibly can. As you guys know, when you build a product, it takes a few iterations before you get closer to the bullseye and you never really hit the bullseye always, right? I mean, there's always a gap here or there, but that methodology they introduced uh, using sort of these agile development techniques, which is now being applied to how uh, developers should be thinking about building applications, uh, whether it's an internal application, a web application, a mobile application, uh, was very cool. And, uh, you know, I think uh, that was definitely a huge eye-opener for a lot of the folks who came from the traditional, you know, systems development background, like whether it was a database or, you know, uh, uh, you know, Hadoop distribution or distributed system or what have you. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's quite an exciting background and that we're seeing that, uh, those methodologies, the ideas get adopted at a crazy scale. So I want to shift gears a bit to, to talk about your current work. So you're now working for blue data. Who's uh, a company that we've, we, we obviously have been paying attention to you guys. You and I have been talking for, for a number of years, but give me the high level, because what I understand and when I read, you know, kind of the, the, the quick pitch on the website is that your team's figured out a way to containerize Hadoop. And you've built this this management orchestration platform for big data applications that that seems very different in the market than what anybody else is doing. Help me understand what does that actually mean? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, I joined Blue Data about, you know, three and a half years ago. And, you know, at the time, I was very clearly seeing a pattern, having worked at Pivotal and having worked with a number of customers on Hadoop and Spark and so on, that it was becoming extremely challenging for our customers to uh, deploy Hadoop in a way that they could actually get consumption uh, from, from it, from, for their data scientists and for their analysts. And then as folks were going on the Hadoop journey, they were just landing up in these sort of environments where there was significant cluster sprawl and, you know, basically racks of servers with, you know, Hadoop clusters and, you know, folks say they have a thousand node Hadoop cluster. In reality, what they really mean is like 20 different Hadoop clusters, maybe of 40 or 50 uh, nodes or physical servers. So, you know, for me, the I mean, I was really passionate about, I really believe in the technology, but I fundamentally believe that there had to be a better way of uh, deploying Hadoop and for consuming Hadoop for the data scientists whom I had worked with very closely. And at the same time, I, I was seeing this trend where in the cloud, in the public cloud, it was relatively easy in a matter of maybe a few hours, you could get a Hadoop cluster up and running, run a job on it, tear it down, get your insights and go away. But on premises, there was really no model like what was available in the public cloud. So that's when, you know, when I met Blue Data, they were still in stealth. And, um, you know, I was very fascinated by some of the core tenets out there, 
uh, that they had laid out, which really aligned with my thinking. So I obviously jumped on board. And uh, so what we're doing at Blue Data is essentially building that sort of public cloud, you know, Hadoop consumption experience on premises uh, for, you know, the enterprises, whether it's financial services companies, healthcare companies, and so on, to fundamentally change the consumption model for Hadoop on-prem so that it's easy to spin up an environment, a Hadoop cluster, a Spark cluster, um, you know, of with, with a distribution of that customer's choice. You know, they may have bet on, you know, uh, you know Cloudera or Hortonworks or someone else, or maybe want to get a, a latest and greatest, uh, you know, a Flink or a Spark that's on the cutting edge. The ecosystem is moving so fast. How can you make it simple for them to get this environment up and running, uh, point at some data that might already exist in the enterprise, whether it's in an existing, uh, you know, NFS system, or maybe you know, somebody's already built a 20-node Hadoop cluster and there's a bunch of data there. How do you get access to that data and really change the consumption model and get it going quickly? So, you know, obviously the, what we identified is that you have to virtualize the, the, the Hadoop and Spark clusters in some fashion, uh, much like the public cloud has done so that you can get that elasticity, get that simplicity on-prem. So, you know, we started originally with VMs, uh, but then we quickly realized that, you know, the unit of virtualization uh, has to be something different uh, so that we can get the same experience not only on-prem, where someone can use their customized like Cloudera distribution or Hortonworks distribution, run it on-premises, maybe have to burst it into the cloud because they don't have enough capacity on-prem or have a multi-cloud strategy. So we did something very cool very early on, which was you know, almost two years ago, even before there was really a, a hardcore container management platform that was getting any level of traction or maturity, was to say, we're going to go and move to containers. We're going to use containers as lightweight virtual machines and build uh, a virtualization approach uh, around Docker containers and provide a mechanism by which a user can go in and say, I want a 10-node Hadoop cluster. And another user in another business unit can say, I want a 15-node Spark cluster and be able to spin those up using Docker containers as the lightweight virtual machines and get sort of multi-tenancy where there's complete isolation, take care of all the challenges around storage and networking. So that's what we, we've figured out. We've cracked the code on how to run Hadoop and Spark on Docker, but make it look and feel exactly the way it works on physical machines uh, when deployed you know, manually. So you went from virtualization to containers because that, I think uh, at least the, the, the folks on this, this, uh, this team, we've, We've been around this space long enough. Like it's virtualization was very, it was something everybody wanted to do because it made so much sense. And we saw the cloud providers doing it, but it got so much pushback from the, from the purists, from the, from the vendors, even, uh, you know, like the, 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 the Hadoop vendors were very against it because it was that layer of abstraction that they just, they weren't, they weren't for it. So how did you guys end up settling on containers and, and, and what has that been like in terms of your interaction with some of those purest uh, sort of traditional deployment approach folks, um, and even frankly, the vendors. Yeah, so containers for two reasons. One was um, we clearly saw that spinning up a Docker container uh, as a Hadoop node, uh, we could do that in like literally in seconds, spinning up a container versus spinning up a virtual machine that was overhead. So um, forget performance in terms of the actual sort of Hadoop job performance, just spinning up a cluster was much faster with something like uh, a container. So that was one. But the second, the more important reason and one of the benefits that we saw very early on, and this was a key learning, was that the ecosystem is fast moving. There's a lot of new, uh, you know, BI applications, ETL or data wrangling type applications that sit adjacent to a Hadoop cluster. And when you spin up a Hadoop cluster, it's not just a Hadoop cluster. You need to bring up these edge nodes with like, you know, tools like Trifactor or Dalemere or whatever might be the case. There are hundreds of them. I can't name them all. How do you quickly, and everybody's going to have a slightly different topology. So how do you create these images that are easy for you to kind of uh, package up and orchestrate with all these different dependencies? Version XYZ of, you know, BI tool will work with, you know, CDH 5.8 dot something. 
but how do you make sure that you can package up everything nicely? That was another key benefit that we got, which, which we saw was a little bit challenging to do with, with VMs uh, to build up those. Uh, uh, was, I mean, I'm sure it's doable, but it was a lot easier, a lot more elegant with Docker. Um, so that's one of the other reasons why we chose Docker. And, you know, looking back, that was one of the best decisions we could have made. Because, you know, as we went through the journey, we've got Intel as a strategic partner. They've done significant testing. They published a white paper recently that showed that Hadoop running on blue data, uh, fully managed embedded Docker containers is uh, 2 to 3% faster than running the same Hadoop cluster on bare metal. And this is Intel, you know, who's all about benchmarks and they put that out in the public forum. Uh, there's a blog on that on our website, which links to the Intel's website. And the, one of the ways that we've done that is not just dockerizing Hadoop and Spark, but we also fundamentally believe that the reason why, you know, traditional virtualization left some scorched earth, um, you know, although some people are still using it, and I think if you do things right, it'll still work, was that folks were trying to run HDFS in the VM, uh, on VM DKs. And that, you know, leverages like virtual networking, and there's, you know, VM DKs, which are coming from, you know, some external storage, that does have a lot of implications. So Blue Data is the other key innovation in addition to Docker container containerization is the compute storage separation piece where we made a conscious concept that we will, you know, allow customers to keep the data and HDFS remote and connect to it through this technology we built called DataTap that allows you to, uh, you know, bypass the virtual networking and instead rely on the physical network to connect to your data sets, whether they are in an external HDFS or NFS, and then use that 10 gig pipe to get the data in, you know, you know, basically stream the data to the compute cluster and do some transient caching, which we call IO boost, and, and uh, you know, expose it to the Hadoop and Spark compute nodes. And that obviously has paid a lot of dividends. So I think containerization, combined with this compute storage separation approach is what sets us apart. Um, and of course, you know, the last year or so, we've gone working with a lot of financial services, gone deep into the application lifecycle management, right? Which is just creating a Hadoop cluster is not sufficient. You've got to Kerberize it. You've got to be able to, you know, uh, put your custom libraries in there. You've got to be able to connect to a remote HDFS, which is Kerberized, which has got transparent data encryption enabled. How do you make all these things work together? with security, with isolation, and performance. I mean, that's bringing all of that stuff together is what uh, we added. So we're not just like, you know, somebody who's just spinning up a bunch of Docker containers and using Cloud Era Manager APIs to install on it. So that brings me to the next point about how we're bringing the Cloud Eras and the Hortonworks of the world along is that we are obviously educating them with the help of our customers who are adopting our product and using it and showing them as reference examples to say, guys, Blue data is not equal to just Docker containers. It's much more than running Hadoop or Spark on Docker containers. We are actually not trying to tease apart every single service in Hadoop, like the name node process and the resource manager process and trying to containerize those services as microservices. Instead, we're using Docker in a way and containers as lightweight virtual machines and running the entire Hadoop node on it, doing all the networking on it as though it's a a regular Hadoop node, in other words, what we call an unmodified Hadoop cluster. So that's educating them and showing them that our customers are doing that with success, that Intel and others are able to show that performance is not compromised, uh, is how I think we're bringing a lot of the uh, Hadoop distribution vendors uh, you know, up to speed on what's possible and obviously having large Fortune 10 customers uh, as, as folks who are adopting it is the way I think uh, we're slowly you know, uh, navigating the waters here. Yeah, so it's so so I want to unpack this because architecturally this is I think this is fundamental. So this isn't just that we've that we're trying to like separate every service into its own container. That you're actually just using container as a as an MNO stack basically for managing the cert, like to manage each individual service. I mean because basically the services in in many cases are machines, right? And and for the for lack of a better abstraction term, but one of the things that you hit on is that the concept of your, you've decoupled compute from storage. And that's something that uh, has been really popular in a lot of the big data conferences this year. Uh, the cloud vendors, right? The public cloud vendors talking about it, software companies talking about it. 
Help me understand what is Blue Data doing differently? I think there's some proprietary technology you developed. I know about the IO Boost. You mentioned that briefly, but let's dig into that a little bit more about IO Boost. And then I think there's is it is it called Data Tap, which is your ability to actually provide um, access via data services or to different data uh, sources. Help. Let's unpack that that architecture a little bit more. Absolutely happy to do that. And, and you know, you hit up on a beautiful point here. When we started on the journey, you know, when we say compute storage separation, and to this day, you talk to, uh, you know, anybody who's been doing Hadoop and they'll scratch their head and say, what? Compute storage separation? I thought that's the whole sort of antithesis of Hadoop. I thought the whole point was to co-locate compute and storage. But what's, you know, helped really over the last year and a half or so is as folks have gone to the cloud and cloud has become more interesting, and you see even the uh, Hadoop vendors, you know, having a strong presence in the cloud where they're leveraging S3 as their, you know, data lake, if you will, and, and you know, connecting to S3 directly. That's helped at least have a conversation with some of the folks who just can't get it out of their sort of mindset of, you know, how can you possibly even decouple compute and storage? Um, so that's really helped. And I think now, as you mentioned, as folks have gone on their Hadoop journey and seen this cluster sprawl and all the cost associated with that and more importantly, the lack of agility and, and so on, they are slowly kind of getting around and saying, yeah, compute storage separation makes sense. So what data tap, and so what Blue Data has always had from day one, and that was kind of the um, one of the core tenets of the company was compute storage separation. Data tap essentially is, um, uh, you know, a couple of components that are there, but essentially it's a connectivity layer between um, you know, the, the Hadoop compute cluster and external storage. And it is written as uh, basically a, a service uh, that runs on each of the hosts, the servers on which Blue Data is deployed. Um, so it's a Hadoop compliant sort of file system implementation, but it's a multi-threaded client that runs in this particular service. So there's a data tap service that runs on each and every host each of that uh, service has a multi-threaded C client uh, that can basically connect to a remote HDFS, NFS, and it's pluggable. So we can do, you know, other sort of storage like we've done, you know, Ceph in the past, you know, object stores and so on. Uh, but, you know, right now our focus has been on HDFS, uh, remote HDFS. And um, what, and then what it does is uh, basically uh, Blue Data, the way it, when you build up a containerized Hadoop cluster, Within that Hadoop cluster, we have a Java uh, layer uh, that is basically a Hadoop client, a Java client. And whenever you want to do I/O with the remote HDFS, it connects to this particular data tap service. So let's say I want to connect to a file in a remote HDFS and do a word count on it. I would just point uh, at the namespace. I would say dtap colon slash slash uh, to let's say some specific data lake slash some directory and a file name. And what basically the data tap, uh, the Java client, any of the calls made are intercepted by this service that is running on the server, which then opens up a connection to the remote HDFS, much like a you know, Hadoop client, uh, but it opens it up over the physical network, uh, basically mounts that particular uh, directory and then that file and start, starts to do IO against it. So it does starts to read block by block, you know, contacts the name node, gets the locations of the blocks and then starts to push it up to the container, which is going to process the data. Now, since this service is running on each and every host, there's a possibility that the containers that are running on each and every host are opening up these connections. So it's distributed in nature. So there's no sort of chance of necessarily bottlenecking the network. And then it pushes it up to the, to the container, which thinks it has Hadoop locally. It's getting the data in the Hadoop compliant API, and it then just starts to process the data. So it's kind of similar to how to run jobs with S3 colon slash slash, except S3 colon slash slash is specific to the object S3 object store. Data tap is kind of storage agnostic. It just talks at, you know, does protocol function. Southbound talks the native protocol, northbound it exposes the HDFS API. So are there, because um, we've seen other, like anytime you try to break the, the local HDFS file system kind of construct we've seen in, in other technologies that, you know, there's, there's versioning concerns, right. To where as a new version of, you know, CDH or HTTP drops that, uh, that it affects the underlying protocol translation you're doing, which, you, you know, kind of basically said is basically a, you know, Java service and some C, um, 
is is does that exist like do you have that challenge with blue data where um as new versions of software and technologies come out that that they break this ability to use that technology uh not not really because i think as long so when when hadoop uh, 3. comes out you know there may be some api changes and we may have to do some testing but in the as long as you are hdfs 2.0 higher um we have not seen that. And in fact, uh, the reason being that our multi-threaded C client, the way it talks to the remote name node is not using the Java layer. We are using uh, basically RPCs and protobuf. Uh, so we're talking at a much lower layer. And that protobuf version typically doesn't change. The Java stuff on, on top of that changes. And that's what a lot of the typical BIETL tools use. So the way our data tap is written is... And that's why we're able to have our customers run CDH 512 clusters and run jobs against you know, data that is stored in their existing CDH 57 data lake, uh, or even like you know, you know, new version of Spark 2.2 to work against you know, uh, access data in HDFS that's much older like CDH 53. Because when we make the connection from our host to the remote HDFS, um, typically, we are talking at a layer that is at much at, at the sort of the, the RPC and the protobuf layer. And we have a blog post on our website that talks about that sort of, that's one of the key benefits that DataTap brings. Yeah, so, that, so it's interesting. You mentioned before, too, the, the ability that DataTap is similar in it's making a call to something like object stores. Like, are you looking at things like object stores as a future? Because one of the things that we saw, again, is like the, the cloud vendors talked about it. They're like, hey... These large scale scale out object stores like an S3, like, you know, and pick your vendor of choice, right? That have a large scale object store. They're all saying, Hey, this is, this is where you should store all your data. You write your applications to, to dump the data here. It can become your archive location. And then what we'll do is we'll expose that data to a scalable elastic service that if you want to go analyze that data, you can. Is that, is that kind of the concept that you're saying that like, uh, well, with blue data, you can do all that stuff on premises. And are you looking at using Blue Data to do things like other clouds besides, or I shouldn't say other clouds, other protocols? Like, is there a roadmap of new interesting protocols that are going to open up new opportunities for Blue Data to be relevant? Right now, I think the the two protocols that are you know obviously supported are HDFS and NFS, and I would say HDFS is the ninety percent use case. We've done some stuff with Swift and S three APIs, uh, but that's right now kind of more. Uh, you know, uh, we haven't seen a lot of demand for it yet, but we absolutely think that that's going to happen in short order. Uh, is folks going to try to, you know, put some kind of products, uh, you know, object storage on-prem and start using it? Um, so, yeah, I think that's absolutely on our roadmap. And those are the three, I would say, uh, HDFS, S3 or object. I'm using them interchangeably. Uh, some level of NFS and, uh, you know, those are the three that I, I, I'm keeping track of. You know, we hear about Ceph. Ceph also exposes, uh, you know, an object interface. Um, yeah, but, you know, what I have to say here in this space for your, you know, audience benefit is that, you know, a lot of the BIETL tools and, and the Hadoop vendors have built, uh, and you were talking about data plane, and they've built a lot of data auditing and a lot of other types of capabilities that rely, that have been purpose-built for HDFS. And now I think they are now progressing those whether they can work with S3. I know that many of the Hadoop vendors are bringing the capabilities around auditing and lineage and all of that and moving that beyond HDFS to, for example, S3 because now they're deploying in the cloud. Um, you know, th that's kind of been the driver why for a lot of customers tended to stay on HDFS because a lot of those products only work with the HDFS API. Yeah, so I, so I want to kind of dig in here. Um, less about tech. What, what I like about Blue Data and the reason why I've been a fan of generally the technology and, and kind of paid attention was it goes back to what you said originally, which is organizations have this cluster sprawl issue, but they also have uh, enterprise IT issues that creep up for every critical app, which is things like, how am I responding very quickly to new requests, right? Do I have an MNO stack that allows me to quickly respond to demands within the business to, um, Am I providing my uh, my users an as a service type experience? Because we know IT practitioners around the world are fighting to maintain their relevance and build services that are going to continue to compete with um, you know the public cloud providers. 
So help me understand, like, because because I see those as business conversations I have all the time with customers about. Look, we we get it. Like we've got these things that we built. You know, we these critical business analytics tools that we built on top of Hadoop, but we need to solve these enterprise IT problems. Like, help me understand why organizations should look at Blue Data as a platform truly in the enterprise, not just in that it's a neat piece of tech, but like, why are you having success? Like what business problems are you solving specifically that is getting you success in those big kind of global fortune 100 customers? No, no, that's a great question. And you brought up MNO management and orchestration and so on. So I, I think we're getting interest right now is I think over the last three years, a lot of customers have, you know, taken Hadoop from what was, you know, like this, you know, technology that, uh, you know, exposed a lot of opportunities, obviously cost savings from the standpoint of offloading from EDWs. So now they could build this big repository where they could copy all of that data. So let's take a financial services organization. Um, they were traditionally using the, you know, MPP databases or, you know, the teradatas of the world or Oracle data or what have you. And they moved to Hadoop because it offered a, a, a cost point that was, you know, very attractive to them. And they built this, they all these ETL jobs in place to load all this data lake and put the data in place, secure it, and so on. And then, you know, I think now we are at this phase, which we, I would have thought would have happened a lot sooner, was how do we exploit that data? How do we enable our risk teams, our, our digital teams, to be able to get insights from this data and allow them to create new products, new revenue models, or what have you? And they're not able to do that. They built this big data lake. It's governed. There's some jobs that run every single night. Everything is cleansed, organized into domains. But the moment you have to onboard a user to do analytics on it, that's where things are breaking down for these customers. They are forced in most of these architectures to build another Hadoop cluster. They'll call it an analytics cluster or a customer cluster. And so these teams who are responsible for servicing the needs of the business are not able to move fast enough. It is taking them months. And that's where they're getting disrupted uh, by startups and what have you, right? So what they are looking to do is fundamentally change the consumption model for how they enable their end customers, their internal customers. And this is where, you know, I think they spent a lot of time doing this governance and building this data lake in place. Now it's all about analytics and how do I get value from that data. So this is where I think they are recognizing the fact that, okay, you know, I need to keep my data in one place. I can't keep building these Hadoop clusters every time I have to order a rack of servers and I have to have some level of elasticity. I need to be able to build and deliver the tools that each team needs. And as you guys know, it's a dynamic ecosystem. Today, it's Spark 2.2. Tomorrow, it might be, you know, um, you know, some other new TensorFlow that with GPUs that's coming up. That's what the business wants. There's some guy wants SaaS via. He's a SaaS user. He wants SaaS via. So how do you meet all these demands? That's where they see the fit with Blue Data. The fact that they can... There's a, you know, an out-of-the-box sort of product that can, you know, build an environment for you in a matter of few clicks. So just as an example, we have a large bank in the UK that had ex this exact same problem. And so they wanted a workflow where they could go into a ServiceNow portal, allow their users to say, hey, I want, a, you know, a SQL on Hadoop or like, let's say, you know, a Hive tool or a SQL on Hadoop tool or a machine learning, you know, notebook. Uh, that I want provision pointed at four, four or five specific data sets from, you know, last year. And I want to do analysis for 30 days. And I want to have that, you know, do that analysis, get my results, and then and then go away. But I've, And so this particular company has built a workflow out where within a matter of hours, the user can go and request that, have the, all the tools constructed um, with all the necessary endpoints to their notebooks or CLI access run their jobs against specific data sets, and then, you know, after 20, 30 days, you know, blow away that cluster and reclaim the resources and give it to some other group. Being able to do all that in a matter of days is, uh, and then allowing your time to insight to, to sort of improve significantly is, I think, the opportunity that folks are seeing. So it's all about automation at the end of the day. You think about it, AI is about automation. You've got to start uh, at this point with automation. So that's kind of where we see a lot of the mature customers who have built a data lake, but now are in that exploratory and, and exploitation phase, see a lot of good fit with data. And that's where, to your point, management and orchestration is key to, to automation. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's the that's the story, right? We're trying to get to that, that responsive um, 
cloud, I wouldn't say cloud competitive because cloud is an, is an operating model, not a place, right? We always we kind of talk about that uh, within our organization. But I think your technology really gives organizations that ability to have on-premises deployments of these big data technologies to use the modern scale-out technologies like Hadoop and others for storage, but really be that flexible service provider to the internal IT in a way that in, in the big data space has been kind of a challenge, right? It's been, it's been a very interesting um, world we live in where enterprise IT organizations have had to shift their skills, right? They've been, they've been really good at, for many years, building critical business applications like an Oracle and SAP and a Microsoft business service. Um, but this, this big data space is hard, man. Like, and so I love that your organization's taken a really pragmatic approach of how do I pick the right underlying orchestration and and call it virtualization, if you will, but containerization technologies. Um, that's really, really interesting. I really dig that. So, so I want to close with this in terms of kind of closing off on the blue data stuff. If, if you were to like, where's the best place for us to find out uh, more information? So if listeners are, are, are interested in digging in more with blue data and learning, um, where would you, where would you, where would we find you and, and more about, more about big blue, uh, blue data online? Three key locations. One is our website. We've got some excellent resources. We've done a number of web, we've got some white papers. We've done a number of webinars talking about big data as a service and, you know, how we do it, how we build it, uh, some customer case studies. So there's a, 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 you know, a wide range of webinars. And then there's obviously our docs website, docs.bluedata.com, where we have a lot of content. And a YouTube channel that has uh, Blue Data is a YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and just type in Blue Data, you'll come across a channel where we have a bunch of videos uh, that highlight, you know, all of the key capabilities in our product, give you some visuals to internals. Um, so th there's a number of resources out there. And obviously, you know, folks can, uh, you know, reach out to us through our website and we'd be happy to send them any other sort of content they want. We've got a rich set of blogs on our website. Um, we're all about big data as a service, enabling that consumption model or, you know, on premises as well as in the cloud and multi-cloud. Uh, what we've seen is customers like what we do on premises, but they're, everybody's increasingly have a, having a multi-cloud strategy or a hybrid strategy. So Blue Data has, you know, taken the same experience we deliver on premises, some of the same constructs and, you know, allowed you to have that same experience in the cloud. Uh, as an abstraction layer so that, you know, your user won't even know that this is actually running in the cloud, uh, especially when you need to kind of scale up from, you know, some number of racks of servers to potentially just leveraging the economics, the cost economics of the cloud. So, um, yeah, no, I think there's a, a number of resources out there, uh, which, uh, you know, you, you guys, I encourage our, our viewers to go and check out. Excellent. And I, well, so we're going to shift gears here real quick. We're going to have a little fun with you. Uh, we close our show every week with a set of rapid fire questions that, uh, that we ask everybody. So, so we're going to throw them at you. You give us the, the, the idea here is, is for you to give us your, your gut response. Like the first thing that comes to your mind, don't, don't think about it too hard. So the first question is what year do you think Skynet will go online? Skynet 2030. <laughs> 2030. All right. Fair enough. Um, if you were to buy me a book, what would it be? Uh, from Good to Great. From Good to Great. That's uh, the Jack Welch book, right? Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, from a music perspective, is there any particular genre of music that you are uh, you're rocking right now? Genre of music? Uh, looking at, uh, you know... Uh, some rap music. Uh, I, I'm I'm lately listening to Eminem. <laughs> it's a bit late, but uh, it's always a start, right? No, it's cool. He's. Uh, I saw an Onion article the other day about uh, how Eminem was now concerned that his daughter would start dating somebody who grew up listening to Eminem, which is kind of fun. Um, what is your favorite piece of kind of useless tech? Like cool. It's really cool. You love it, but it's you recognize it's kind of dumb. Uh, believe it or not, VR. Virtual reality. Ah, so what? So, so hold on. We got to pick this one because I like that VR. What what VR kit are you playing with? Um, you know, I've played around with the the uh, Samsung stuff, and in fact, I got to see uh, some of that at uh, at one of the conferences recently. So I I've not bought any kit yet. I just go and you know wherever there's uh, stuff okay. that you know at a lot of these conferences they'll have some VR stuff that you can go check out. Um, yeah, you know, I I still have to uh, grok it. But it's cool. It's really cool. Really cool stuff. 
What is your, so personally, what is your biggest money pit right now? I live in the Bay Area, so th- that's, th- that's kind of a no-brainer question, right? So I live in the Bay Area. It, uh, you, know, you pay an arm and a leg. You pay an arm and a leg for, for, uh, for a house. So for you, I mean, I don't know, you're probably in like Tennessee or, you know, uh, Georgia, Atlanta or something like that. Yeah, we're in Alabama. So Tom, Thomas and I are in Alabama where for what you pay for a house, you could officially buy a third of the state, which is cool. Um, uh, Anant, are you going anywhere uh, interesting soon? Going on any cool trips? Don't get me started. I booked a trip to Puerto Rico for Thanksgiving weekend, and I had to cancel the uh, uh, the place. I was really looking forward to it, but not anymore. Oh, that's a bummer. Puerto Rico's awesome. I yeah, hate so, this. So I'm, still working, I'm still working on it. Um, I, I really wanted to... Uh, I really wanted to go to some of those Caribbean islands. I've never been there, but I guess I'll have to uh, hold on those plans for another year. Yeah, don't go during hurricane season. Kind of scary. All right, last question. Uh, is there a show, TV show, Netflix, Amazon Prime, is there any particular show that you're binging on right now or that you think is just like totally binge worthy? I just binge on Sports Center these days. That's all I can do at late night. <laughs> that's That's perfect. Tell us how we can find you online. You got a Twitter handle, blog. What's the best way to track you down personally? Um, yeah, I think my Twitter handle, at uh, Anant Seaman, is the, the best way to kind of, uh, you know, uh, find me and, uh, you know, get at me. Excellent. Well, Anant, we appreciate you being on the show today. It was awesome to talk with you about Blue Data and your really uh, interesting technology for uh, not only containerizing big data, but actually creating that cloud-like experience for organizations looking to deploy uh, big data applications on-premises with all the features that they come to expect from that cloud operating model. So super great to have you on. Robert and Thomas, thank you so much for joining us as co-hosts this week. And I'll encourage each of you listeners out there, hit the subscribe button. Whichever platform you've chosen to enjoy this podcast on, make sure you hit the subscribe button. And always, you can check us out on www.bigdatabeard.com. I'm Corey Minton. Thanks for listening.